brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Assume nothing. Brash, bald-faced blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts, losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. In an age where we research online, we shop online, we search for our friends and life partners online, many of us are still chaining ourselves to the old ways of prepping, posting, and mailing letters and packages. And if you are one of those people, let me say that Stamps.com is a time saver. It's a money saver for the individual, for the small business. It's a lifesaver because Stamps.com brings all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your own desk and printer. 
Just create a Stamps.com account. No equipment to lease. No long-term commitments. It's available 24-7. Print postage for any letter or package, domestic or international. Any mail class, right from your own printer. They send you a digital scale that just plugs right into your USB jack. So you can calculate exact postage without the need for an expensive postage meter. They're just awesome. I use Stamps.com for my book and business mailouts for sending personal letters and packages. Right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Seth Andrews. That's Stamps.com. Enter Seth Andrews. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Today's broadcast is about Islam and radical Islam. What is it? How do we define it? How do we solve the problem of Islam and radical Islam? Is moderate, quote-unquote, moderate Islam even a problem? Is there a peaceful incarnation of Islam we should support? What do we do with Islam? Islam typically translated as submission to God. It is derived from the Arabic word salam, which means peace. In context, peace when you submit to Allah. There are currently about 6 million Muslims in the United States. There are over 1.5 billion Muslims globally. That's about 24% of the world population. Islam is the dominant religion throughout large portions of Asia and Africa. Indonesia has 170 million Muslims. Pakistan, 136 million. Bangladesh has 106 million. India, 103 million. It is the second largest religion on planet Earth. Christianity coming in at number one on the list. Most Muslims falling into two categories, Sunni and Shia. And we're going to get further into the discussion about Sunni versus Shia later in the broadcast. Islam has five basic beliefs. Islam believes in one God, Allah. Allah, by the way, is the Arabic word for God. It's not believed to be a separate God from the Judeo-Christian version. The word Allah appears in the Quran about 2,700 times. Quran 112, 1 through 4 says, Say he is God the one. God, to whom the creatures turn for their needs. He begets not, nor was he begotten, and there is none like him. Belief in one God. Belief in prophethood. The prophet Muhammad and the ones who came before. Belief in the justice of God. Belief in the imams or apostles of God. Belief in the day of judgment. The practice of Islam based on the five pillars of Islam. Number one is to declare one's belief in God and the prophetic role of Muhammad. Number two is to pray five times every day. You pray at dawn, noon, afternoon, sunset, and in the evening. Number three, give charity to those in need. Number four, to fast from food, water, and other bodily pleasures during daylight hours in the month of Ramadan. And five, to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your lifetime, if this is physically and economically possible. The five pillars of Islam. Muslims don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they don't hold to a trinity. Quran 572 says, Indeed, they have disbelieved to have said God is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. The Messiah said, Children of Israel worship God 
My Lord and your Lord, whoever associates partners in worship with God, then God has forbidden paradise for him, and his home is in the fire or hell. For the wrongdoers, there will be no helpers. Muslims follow the lunar calendar. Ramadan falls on the ninth month of the lunar calendar. It's the Islamic holy month, the month when it's taught that the Prophet Muhammad received the Quran. Now, Islam posits that the Quran was verbally revealed by God to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel over a period of about 23 years, beginning December 22nd in the year 609 CE, when Muhammad was allegedly 40 years old, and then concluding on the year of Muhammad's death, 632 CE. The Hadith are scriptures supplemental to the Quran, supplemental teachings, which allegedly report the words and the actions of the Prophet Muhammad. Hadith comes from Arabic. It means report, an account, a narrative. These are reports from what Muhammad said and did, the Hadith. It's important secondary to the Quran, but supplemental. And there's disagreement within various sects of Islam about the authenticity and importance of the Hadith. There's debate about whether it's blasphemy to depict images of the Prophet Muhammad. The harder lines within Islam declaring that depictions of Muhammad are an affront to Allah himself and deserving of death, as it is written, Quran 693, who can be more wicked than one who invents a lie against Allah? If the death penalty is prescribed for a lesser crime, then it stands to reason it should be imposed for the most wicked. Quran 33:57 Lo those who malign Allah and his messenger Allah has cursed them in this world and the hereafter and has prepared for them the doom of the disdained Proponents of a reasonable Islam an enlightened Islam a progressive Islam they declare that Islam is actually a religion of peace We hear it said so often out there, Islam means peace. Islam is a religion of peace. It promotes goodness. It honors women. It pursues scientific discovery. It benefits the world. This is our Islam. Organizations like Muslims for Peace and the Council for American Islamic Relations condemn acts of terrorism and barbarism that so often dominate the headlines done in the name of Islam or Allah. As radical Islam has shed innocent blood by the dozens or hundreds, their last words often being the cries of Allahu Akbar. Allah is the greatest. A suicide car bomb in Afghanistan killed 29 and injured 60. Another suicide car bomber killed 15 in Somalia. 34 women and children executed for trying to flee the Islamic State in Iraq. Five female suicide bombers killed 16 people in Nigeria. A gunman in Mali killed five and injured eight at a resort. A Buddhist shot in the head by radicals in Thailand. A police detective was gunned down by Islamic fundamentalists in Egypt. All this and more just in the last half of the month of June of this year. Very often the blame for the acts of the radical Islamist or Muslim is passed on to all Muslims often resulting in discrimination and violence against those who are not related to the attacks. The Chicago Tribune just ran a story last week titled Violence Against Muslims Rises in Wake of Islamic State Terror Attacks. The article published in the shadow of the recent terrorist attack in London. A radical drove his car through pedestrians. 
Along the south side of the Westminster Bridge and Bridge Street, he killed four people and injured more than 50 people. The Tribune article said this, quote, Across Britain, Muslims say they are being targeted by a wave of animosity and violence simply because of the way they dress and worship and because they share a religion hijacked by bloodthirsty extremists like the Islamic State group, which was quick to claim responsibility for recent attacks in Britain and elsewhere. Since the wave of ISIS-inspired terror attacks in Britain, there has been a five-fold increase of hate crimes against Muslims. Andrew Mack at Slate published a rather ambiguous article last year declaring that Islam isn't violent or peaceful. The article condemns the radical, but it also declares that Muslim societies are among the least violent in the world. And this is a quote from the article. In 2011, a major study by the University of California, Berkeley, political scientist M. Stephen Fish presented cross-national statistical data showing that between 1994 and 2007, annual homicide rates in the Muslim world averaged just 2.4 per 100,000 of the population. That was approximately a third of the rate for the non-Muslim world and less than the average rate in Europe. It's also approximately half the homicide rate in the United States. Now, hang on. If I can editorialize for just a second. The article was pretty oblivious to those more radical Islamic nations, these theocratic nations which impose strict religious laws, anti-speech laws, anti-human rights laws. And so they essentially quell the population. On the surface, they keep the peace. There's not a lot of overt crime, but in these theocracies, they are suffocating their own citizens. Of course, you're not going to see as much murder in the streets. Of course, you're not going to see as much violence. And if violence is carried out as a reprisal, as a rule of law by government, it's not going to be called violence. Not in that context. So just from my perspective, I found the Slate article to be a bit misleading. A Pew Research study that came out last year says that about a quarter of our planet's countries and territories, about a fourth of them, have anti-blasphemy laws, many of these nations Islamic. And the punishments for blasphemy vary. You might get a monetary fine or they might just execute you outright. And as with Christianity, you know, we see the struggle between a religion's scriptures and fundamental teachings and its wide and diverse array of cultures and teachings and practices and attitudes on a planet of 7 billion people. We see so many out there crying Allahu Akbar as they mow children down with machine guns and detonate suicide vests and behead their captives in front of a video camera. And then we see others saying Allahu Akbar as they declare that they are in fact not interested at all in violence, that they hate violence, that they, like us, just want a peaceful world. And so again, we look at the issue of Islam, its teachings, its radicals, and the challenge that we face as the influence of Islam continues to swell across the planet, the fastest growing religion 
on Earth. In this broadcast, I'm going to feature various conversations and portions of conversations that are going to be released in their full-length form as videos on YouTube. You're going to hear from Faisal Saeed Al-Mattar. He was born in Iraq. He now lives on the East Coast in the United States. He is an atheist and an activist. He often addresses Islam. You're going to hear from Sarah Hader and Mohammed Syed of ex-Muslims of North America. They're going to talk about the plight of the ex-Muslim. I want to address with Sarah and Mohammed some of the more uh, controversial voices in some recent discussions regarding Islam. Specifically, I'm going to ask them about Sam Harris and Reza Aslan, you know, after that big dust up on Bill Maher a couple of years ago, that fight continues even today. Is the person who criticizes a Muslim automatically a bigot or racist? We're going to get into that. You're going to hear from a woman named Yasmin Muhammad. Now, she was once the wife of a member of Al-Qaeda. She is now an atheist. She is a fierce critic of Islam. You're going to hear from Ali Rizvi. He's author of the book, The Atheist Muslim. He talks about Islamophobia. We hear that quite a bit. You're just an Islamophobe. You're a racist. He's going to address that directly. You're going to hear from Armin Navabi. He was born in Iran. He went on to become an atheist. He's founder of AtheistRepublic.com. Armin thinks that the idea of reforming and or moderating Islam is actually an insult to people's intelligence. He's going to explain why. So we're going to hear from a lot of ex-Muslims and a lot of people from Islamic nations. It is my hope that we can approach the subject of Islam, radical Islam, without hyperbole, without apology, and that we'll have a genuine desire to just understand what we're up against here in the 21st century. It's my hope that we're all going to get some perspective today, that we're going to learn something, and that we will come away with a better understanding of the problem and the solutions to that problem. Ali Rizvi is an atheist, but he was once a devout Muslim. He grew up in Libya, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, before moving to Canada and the U.S., and now he writes. He essentially writes about secularism in the Muslim world. He's a contributor to the Huffington Post. He's done work for outlets like CNN. He's a physician in his private life, but he's perhaps best known these days as author of a book that just released recently called The Atheist Muslim, A Journey from Religion to Reason. And I give Ali a hard time because he and I share the same subtitles to our books. Well, I'm going to release the entirety of the video interview to YouTube here in a matter of days, but I wanted to share a few segments from our conversation with you. First of all, I wanted Ali to explain the book title, What is an Atheist Muslim? The title is an obvious contradiction. It's intentional and obvious. And there are a lot of geniuses uh, that have pointed out to me that, hey, this is a contradiction. You know, they never complained about the movie Back to the Future for some reason. The atheist Muslim, though, really gets to them. The thing is, uh, there are millions, and that's shown by polling data. There are millions of atheists, agnostics, um, secularists, free thinkers in the Muslim world, living in Muslim-majority countries right now, um, who have to publicly identify as Muslims. If they speak up against it, if they express their views openly... They'll get disowned by their families. They can get marginalized by their communities. They lose their friends. Uh, they can be imprisoned. They can be executed. Um, atheism is punishable by death. 
in 13 countries around the world, all of which are Muslim majorities, majority countries. Um, and the cost of them coming out and publicly speaking their views, right, and shaking off the Muslim label are really, really, the consequences are very dire. Uh, so these are the atheist Muslims. Let's talk about the critics of Islam in Islamic nations and around the world and the rise of the atheist Muslim or the secular Muslim. There are a few who've spoken up about it. Like there's Raif Badawi, who's a blogger in Saudi Arabia, a Saudi blogger who started a website called Free Saudi Liberals. And he spoke about secularism. They threw him in jail. He's serving a 10-year sentence and he's been sentenced to a thousand lashes. Right? He's been separated from his, his family and his children uh, simply for doing exactly what I do, right? which is write and write about secularism and his activism. So there are bloggers in Bangladesh right, who have been hacked to death in the streets by Islamic fundamentalist lunatics simply for writing what they thought. Right? So they, there probably are more. There are probably many, many more. But they don't want to suffer the same fate. So you're not going to hear from them. We don't hear from them. I have received... If I showed you my inbox, I've received thousands and thousands of emails and messages uh, from atheists, closeted atheists in Egypt, in Malaysia, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Bangladesh, all of these countries. And I, I hear from them all the time. When I was writing the book, they were telling me, can you please say this? Can you make sure you mention this or that? Because I can't say it here. Uh, so, so there are definitely a lot of them. And just to put numbers on it, and these are probably still underrepresented, is uh, there was a Gallup poll um, recently, a couple of years ago, uh, that showed that Saudi Arabia, the birthplace of Islam, Muhammad, and the Quran, 19% of people identify as non-religious there. 19%. To compare, that's, uh, that same number is 15% in Italy. Right. In Saudi Arabia, 5% of people identified as confirmed atheists. And in the United States, that number is also 5%. So Saudi Arabia has a population of about 20 million people. That's 1 million people in Saudi Arabia who identify as confirmed atheists. Let me throw a term out that um, I hear often, especially for those who are defending Islam or perhaps attacking the critics of Islam. They use the word Islamophobia. You are Islamophobic. What's your take on Islamophobia? Islamophobia is a misnomer. Islamophobia does not make the distinction between legitimate criticism of Islam and anti-Muslim hate or anti-Muslim bigotry. That's a very important distinction. Islam is an idea. It's a set of ideas in a book. Muslims are people. It's an identity. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a group of human beings. Uh, criticizing ideas moves societies forward. Challenging ideas moves societies forward. Demonizing people rips societies apart. And human beings have rights. Ideas don't. The word Islamophobia does not make this distinction. When, you, when we say anti-Semitism, you know, we're not saying Judaismophobia. 
right? We're saying anti-Semitism because bigotry is against people. You can't be bigoted against ideas. And, and that when it doesn't make that distinction, it's actually a very, um, a very, a very sinister term because it actually takes the pain of genuine victims of anti-Muslim bigotry and exploits that for the political purpose of stifling criticism of Islam. Do Islamic fundamentalists use the term Islamophobia? They don't just use it. They love that term because they can exploit it uh, to censor people. They can say that if, you're, if, you, if you have any kind of criticism against Islam, you know, you're being uh, bigoted against us. They'll even say you're being racist against us. Right, which doesn't make sense because Islam is not a race. Nobody's born pre-circumcised. Nobody's born with a hijab on their head. I mean, these, this is not, you, you can convert in and out of Islam. You can't convert in and out of a race. Uh, but they, 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 the word Islamophobia gives them a chance to make racism and genuine criticism of Islam and ideology. It gives them an opportunity to conflate the two. And again, keep an eye on the YouTube page because I will release the entirety of that video interview shortly. It's just a compelling, I think it runs about 15 minutes or so, and he's just a fantastic communicator. Next up on the broadcast, I've got Mohammed Syed and Sarah Hader. They are co-founders of the Ex-Muslims of North America. I've had the chance to have each on the radio in the past and conduct video interviews with them as well. Been really looking forward to the chance to speak with them again on the issue of Islam, radical Islam, Mohammed Syed. Sarah Hader, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm just going to jump right into the deep end if I can and talk about... Reza Aslan, an Iranian-American author, a religious studies scholar, a professor, and a popular speaker. He's on news shows and talk shows all the time. I was reading Reza's uh, biography. Apparently born into a Shia Muslim family, he then became a Christian for a short time in his teens, and then he reconverted back to Islam. And I've been reading his positions on Islam, and I can't make heads or tails of it. He talks about man-made institutions and faith-transcending labels and... And then after watching him go after people like Sam Harris, I have also heard him called an Islam apologist. Can you guys talk to me about Reza Aslan and your perspective? I'll start with you, Muhammad. What do you think? So from my perspective, he's largely an opportunist in the sense that there's a demand for somebody to make Islam sound good. There are a lot of people that are desperate to hear that. And he's willing to say whatever, regardless of its uh, basis in reality, to make people feel good about Islam. So he's sort of the Joel Osteen of Islam. He goes out and just says happy, clappy, touchy-feely platitudes that talk about warmth and faith and goodness, but he's not interested in the specifics of the teachings in the Quran. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that on the whole. I think there's a market for this kind of thing, just a ready-made audience that wants to hear platitudes that make them feel comfortable with the fact that they consider themselves probably liberal and progressive, but also that they don't feel an urgency to talk about Islam or to consider it a real threat. And so this gives them just a ready-made worldview that they can just hop into. Um, but what I think is interesting and should be considered is that, as far as I know, he isn't thought of as 
an authority on Islam within Muslim communities. And that should be something that is relevant, that he's not the person that people are looking to when they're wanting a leader to tell them how to feel about their religion or, or, how, or what to do or how to do it. Um, he's not somebody that they look at. In my opinion, he's somebody that is speaking largely to a Western audience, and he's being listened to by Westerners as a whole and not by Muslims. So if we want people to to modernize Islam, we have to have people that Muslims will take seriously. And as far as I know, most Muslims don't take Raza Aslan seriously as a religious leader. Yeah, so the issue is, if your priorities are the narrative and the par- your priorities are what makes you feel good about the world, then he'll appeals to that in a wonderful way. But if your priorities are what reality is, what truth is, what matters, how things need to change, then he's completely irrelevant. Right. So it's it's important to take a look at what are we looking at here? What do we really want from people who can be spokespeople about Islam? And what we should be looking at is somebody who can give us an honest picture of what's happening. And that includes any good things and that includes bad things. That includes talking about anti-Muslim bigotry, but also talking about the problems within the faith. And There are certain people who just want to show the bright side of things, you know, and just want to show how Muslims are victims in society. And they are there are victims in some ways. And so we should be talking about that. But that's not the whole story. And it's important that we look at the whole story. And if there is somebody who's really only telling you one side of things and they are, in effect, lying, even if they're not lying. In my opinion, they're more dangerous to the Muslim community itself because Change needs to happen. That's not really under questions. But if you're trying to minimize the possibility of that change happening, this guy is great because he does not want to talk about truth and he will do everything he can to stop that conversation from happening. And change doesn't happen unless there's some sort of selective pressure being applied. People need to confront the truth, grapple with the truth. It's complicated. And they won't be comfortable with it because it makes them feel bad because a core belief of theirs has problems. But if you're not willing to even acknowledge that there are problems, how can anything move forward? I mentioned Sam Harris, Sarah Hader. You just had the chance to be a guest on his radio show, which was kind of a huge deal. Uh, Sam's taken a lot of flack, right? He's he's this entitled white guy criticizing Islam. What's your perspective on Harris and that whole controversy? Well, I think that anyone who isn't a Muslim themselves <laughs> speaking about the faith, particularly in a negative way, faces just an onslaught of pushback from people who are, generally speaking, progressives and on the left. And I think a lot of it is incredibly unfair. So the atmosphere, as far as I see it today, is that the only people who can talk about the faith are Muslims, and the only thing they can say is non-critical things. So you have reformist Muslims like Majid Nawaz and, you know, Asra Nomani, who will speak about the problems within the faith, but they are demonized. So it's there's only a select group of people who we consider as authentic voices when it comes to how we should be looking at Islam and the Muslim world. And that leaves no space for somebody like Sam, who is way outside of that bubble, who is, you know, a white male, to talk about these issues and get away with it, right? I mean, he can be as honest as possible. He can be as charitable as possible, as compassionate as possible. But so long as he's taking a negative view on the faith, so long as he's being critical, he's going to get pushback. He's going to be smeared. And it's um, it's incredibly unfair, and it 
really is frustrating to people like me, to ex-Muslims who don't really, you know, we don't really have too many champions. We don't really have too many people who are taking on our issues and making them their own and speaking about the problems within the Muslim world that affect us and hurt us. And so when you see the few people that are talking about it be demonized so unfairly and routinely called an Islamophobe, it's definitely disheartening. I was just saying that it's a in my opinion, a lot more insidious than that. The whole point is to silence people and using charges of Islamophobia as a way of silencing people that are speaking out. If somebody's talking about, uh, say, Sam Harris being a bigot because he talks about Islam or ask them about who are the top five people that speak about Islam, like Nietzsche spoke about Christianity, who are the people that dislike Islam and speak about it publicly, forcefully, that are okay. They don't exist because they're not allowed to exist. Well, I'll give you an example of like what Muhammad was mentioning, which is that it's a way to silence people. It's a way to use these identity politics to like that, that, that these identity politics that are so easily co-opted by um, religious conservatives and used to silence criticism of religion. And that is a weakness of identity politics as a whole. And that is something that needs to be confronted. Linda Sursur wrote an article a few years ago, I believe, called My Hijab is My Hoodie or something like that. I don't, I don't remember the exact title, but that was so that, that was the title. Right. And, and she she was talking about an incident where a woman, a Muslim woman was killed and there was a note left on her body about some Islamophobic note, according to Linda, that made it clear that this was a hate crime. And she used the hoodie because at that time, the Trayvon Martin case was really popular. Um, and we were we were speaking about it. And it was um, just all over the media. So she was essentially using the Trayvon Martin case to talk about what she perceived as anti-Muslim bigotry. And to me, it was a very visible case of her co-opting uh, racist and xenophobic prejudices in, in American life to shield her religion and shield it from legitimate criticisms. Now, in fact, as it turns out, there was a response. I think a feminist wrote a response to that article and said that, well, you know, it's not the case that your hijab is a hoodie. There's a big difference between the two and there's a big difference between those two kinds of oppression. And that woman, this was published on the Feminist Wire, I believe, and that woman was just smeared by her fellow feminists. There were so many people that were denouncing her and eventually the Feminist Wire took that article down. And in fact, the incidents that Linda Sursur was talking about in that moment when she was talking about the Muslim woman who had been killed and there was a note attached to her that was Islamophobic, turns out that was a that was a hoax. Uh, the woman was essentially honor killed by her husband, and he placed that note there to throw off the police. So there's just so much dishonesty that's going on everywhere. And if people want to talk about it and really tackle these ideas head on, they're finding that they're is so much pushback against them from people within their own tribe. Can we talk about the covering of the face? You know, many parts of the world threatening to, or if they haven't already made it illegal to have a full face covering in public, calling it a public safety issue. However, within Islam and Muslim cultures, some Muslim cultures, they claim it is a religious exercise. The Islamic face veil. Should it be allowed as a protected expression of religion? I think any time the standard should be that while religion does not deserve any special protection, it shouldn't be treated in any different way than we would consider anything else. So if we're banning the face veil, 
we should also ban any facial covering, anything that hides your identity, that includes ski masks, that includes masks in general. If you want to extend this, then it could even you can even say that clown makeup is within that realm where it will hide your identity in a way that that makes it difficult for police to stop you. So if it's a if it's a problem with crime, then we should deal with it in a way that we would deal with crime that doesn't really have to do with religion. So so long as we treat it as the same I have no problem with saying that, okay, we're going to ban all facial coverings because it's a security threat, but definitely apply that across the board. I don't think that the face veil should be especially condemned because it has these religious roots. Now, of course, those religious roots are reprehensible, and I disagree with the ideology behind why women should cover their faces, but that's not up for me to decide, and that's not up for the law to decide. We are in a free country. And part of living in a free country means that you tolerate the ridiculous beliefs of your fellow citizens. And if your fellow citizens think that I'm a woman and I'm ashamed of my body or I'm a woman and God told me to cover up, then she's following her conscience and she should be allowed to do that despite how ridiculous it actually is. I just wanted on the record, by the way, that all clown makeup should be illegal. It's just <laughs> terrifying to me. I'm sorry. Muhammad. Educate me. I mean, give me the clips notes here. I know it's a hugely broad question, but in Christianity, there are thousands of different denominations. But whenever I read and research and hear about Islam, it always seems in my mind to come down to Sunni versus Shia. Is that pretty accurate? I mean, is it split kind of an A-B choice when it comes to Islam or what? No. So there are a lot more subdivisions, but the issue is that they're relatively tiny. So it's like 80% Sunni, 15 to 17%, something like that. Shia and 2-3% everybody else put together. They're at ideological war with each other. Why? So it's basically a family feud from 1,400 years ago. That is all that it actually is. So Muhammad's grandson versus Muhammad's arch-rival's grandson, who gets power, it, it was a struggle between that. Muhammad's grandson lost, and his followers are called the Shia. It was actually Shia Ali, uh, the followers of Ali. And the other followers became the mainstream Sunni. So it's largely a struggle for power that's 1,400 years old, and they're still angry about who won that fight. And we don't probably even know the details of how much of that fight was actually real and how much is mythical. I mean, how much of this is just inertia? I mean, they've just been pissed off at each other so long that maybe they don't even really know the roots of why they're fighting. Is there any truth to that? No, they know precisely why they're fighting. They <laughs> reinforce that very, very regularly. Right. The the, the actual struggle um, is part of the myth of with Shiism. I grew up, um, I was raised Shia, although... It was kind of strange for me because although I was raised Shia, the community close to me was largely Sunni. So I, well, you know, the, the little Quran class that I went to was by a Sunni woman and was held by a Sunni woman. And, and the Sunday school that I went to were, were with Sunni. So I'm familiar with Sunni myths as well. But for Shia is definitely the actual what happened way, way back then and how Shias were treated and how, you know, Ali was treated and his his uh, especially Hussein was treated that's part of the myth, and that's taught to everybody, and it's an important part of your identity as a Shia. So one thing I'd add is that often internally when we talk about it, we sort of make an analogy with Catholicism and Protestantism in the sense that Shiaism is a lot more ritual-based. The, the rituals are very important. They have mornings for uh, Muhammad's grandson and Muhammad's son and uh, – not son, sorry, a son-in-law. And Sunnism, it is more about doctrine. When a Muslim prays five times a day – what constitutes the actual prayer? 
I mean, quite often I will hear the prayer over the loudspeaker, you know, as I watch the videos and I, I see this done in Islamic communities and Muslim cultures. Are, is there an actual prayer being said? Is it a recitation? Yeah. Are they just bowing and trying to get it over with so they can get on the rest of their day? <laughs> I mean, wh- what's going on here, man? So there are very specific prayers. Uh, the, what you hear over loudspeakers is generally it's the azan, the call to prayer. And it's basically urging people to come and pray. And it literally is uh, talking about how there's only one God and uh, Muhammad is a messenger. And when you go to the actual prayer itself, it also is, it's basically about praising God and then uh, reciting parts of the Quran. Islam is a religion in many ways of recitation, is it not? I mean, I, many of the defenses I see of Islam online don't even look like real communication. It's like these sort of bumper stickers that they rubber stamp these single sentence arguments. Is there a lot of recitation in the religion itself? Recitation is emphasized, but not in that way. The issue with the defense of Islam uh, is that it's never been done before. So imagine in the 15th century, the first time somebody's challenging Christianity, the defense they'll come up with will be very flimsy. So the defenses that people come up with are usually ridiculous, and that's why they're tiny and ill-formed. Yeah, I think we'll see more complex apologetics uh, sprout up as critics of Islam become more widely known and as Muslims encounter criticisms more routinely. Because generally speaking, Muslim communities are pretty close-knit, and you wouldn't encounter criticism, um, especially not from insiders, former believers like us who are able to sort of get into that mindset and able to counter things much more effectively. Many Muslims have never encountered us, have never grappled with our arguments. Um, So once I think I think we'll see a change in the next coming uh, years and maybe decades with how intellectual the apologetics become and how sophisticated the apologetics become. Like the apologetics are going to have to evolve in order to try to stay relevant. Yeah. In my opinion, if we push hard enough, we shouldn't give it the chance to evolve. We have an opportunity here that their apologetics are weak enough that you can just crack through them, which is why, in my opinion, it's very easy to convince people out of Islam in comparison to Christianity, because any crack in the wall makes people question the entire edifice. Talking here with Mohammed Syed and Sarah Hader of ex-Muslims of North America. The Telegraph published an article this past March citing a Pew Research survey that declared that the world's population of Muslims is going to grow by 73% over the next 40 years. It's more than twice as fast as Christianity is projected. As such, by the year 2070, they're saying Islam could be the largest religion in the world. How terrified... Should we be? (laughs) I mean, do you have any thoughts on this study? I doubt it. And by that, I mean, I'm sure that study imagines that if everything continues to be as it is. Yeah. I won't doubt just the idea that Islam will grow and it will grow faster than Christianity. It is going to continue to grow for some time because literally Muslims are having children at a rate that Christians can't compete with. And Muslims are actively proselytizing, I believe, in a way that isn't entirely comparable with Christians at the moment. However, I think the circumstances in which that study, if you just project that everything is staying the same, then perhaps we can see this. But I don't think everything will stay the same. I think, for one, Oil is a big part of how Islamism is funded and how, you know, there are these beautiful mosques that pop up in relatively poor countries. In in Pakistan, you'll see, you know, poverty everywhere. And then you'll see a gorgeous mosque. In India, you'll see poverty everywhere. And you'll see a large, beautiful mosque, well-resourced. And those resources are coming from somewhere. And I think that that 
uh, they will no longer be able to have the kind of power that they have. So economically, the circumstances will shift in a way that will benefit people who are trying to combat this issue. On top of that, the growth of ex-Muslims, the fact that the internet is becoming more accessible to people all across the world, that people are able to see criticisms of their religion, that they're able to see, for, even if you, if you don't look at criticisms of religion, just they're able to see the broader world in a way that was just not available to them before and in ways that can indirectly contradict their religious teaching. So you, if you're able to learn more about science and, and mm. biology and the cosmos, then it's going to indirectly conflict with the teachings of your faith and and you're going to lose the ability to have that kind of 100% certainty in your religion the way that Muslims do now. And I see this happening. And I think that this trend will only increase. I think it's a relatively recent trend. It's only been a few years where ex-Muslims started to speak out publicly, and it's increasing massively year on year. The other side of the issue is that a lot of the growth is through birth rate, and that is because women lack rights. We see this across the world. Whenever women get empowered, get independent, birth rates fall dramatically. And in Muslim countries, that isn't happening. So one thing we need to do is empower women everywhere instead of focusing on specific issues in specific Western parts of the world. If we focus on women's rights globally, regardless of culture, everybody should have the same right, universal rights. Um, That will massively change things. Yeah, female independence, ability to survive outside the home on their own, and ability to participate in the workforce would on its own have a massive, massive influence. And secondary to that, actual reproductive rights and the ability to control whether or not they're going to have children. Subjective question to sort of finish things off. Do you think in our lifetimes we'll see enough of a culture shift so that there might be another Raif Badawi walking down the streets of Saudi Arabia with an atheist t-shirt on and he doesn't get kidnapped or jailed or whipped? I mean, do you think we're going to be able to see a public non-believer in some of these Islamic majority countries? Yes, I do. The thing is that we need to fight to make that happen. It won't happen without a fight. Change doesn't happen until people stand up and demand that change. And there are millions of people demanding this change. They're being silenced right now. But if they had the support of others. Right. Are- it, I mean, it's not a that that's to say that it's not a it's not inevitable, but is possible. It is possible if the push was great enough that our movement gets support and grows the way it has been growing. So it's absolutely possible. And it's absolutely something that we should be championing. And one thing that I find lacking in some progressive politics is the unwillingness to really champion liberal values, the unwillingness to really champion feminism, not only as something that exists in the West, that exists in a Western context and focusing only on the issues of Western women, which of course deserve attention and deserve acknowledgement, but also the fact that feminism is a, is a universal ideology and it should be universal and that human rights should be a universal ideology. So you know, to the extent that we don't have champions, we might not be able to get there. But if enough people are willing to take this on and are willing to fight this battle, I think we can see it. If you look at the world right now, over a dozen countries criminalize being, um, actually, you have the that sentence for being an ex-Muslim. So imagine if the situation right now were um, a fully a, a third of Western countries made it illegal for the penalty of death to be a Muslim, and the rest of it criminalize it to a certain extent, what would the reaction be? How angry would be human rights campaigners, what would be the global push to change these laws, and compare that with what the reaction is to how ex-Muslims are persecuted. So we need to have that 
paradigm shift where ex-Muslim rights are kept on the same level as Muslim rights and we fight for them equally so that they have the full measure of human dignity. And if enough people come forward publicly, perhaps the sleeping giant, those who've been waiting for the opportunity, right, those who've been living in fear under these theocratic regimes might be able to see the public examples and then they can come out of the shadows and give them support. Absolutely. And they can speak up. And the most important thing is that they don't even have to be. And a a criticism that I receive pretty frequently is that you're not going to have the entirety of the Muslim world apostatize overnight. You know, you're not going to have or you're not even going to have a significant percentage or a majority percentage that's going to do this. But, you know, what I have to say to that is you don't need it to be all of them. You don't need it to be the majority of them. You don't even need it to be a broad coalition. So long as ex-Muslims exist and ex-Muslims are able to speak out and feel free to do that without fearing that some severe harm will come down on them. I think that on its own will be enough to propel a lot of change because there doesn't need to be a great number of us for our ideas to speak very loudly and very clearly. And they speak on their own. And Muslims, it doesn't matter how many of them there are. The ideas are not as strong as humanist ideas, as, you know, the ideas of of the Enlightenment. And I think that if ex-Muslims were allowed to share them and to broadcast them, we'll see converts pretty quickly, or at the very least, we'll see people who begin to doubt their faith just enough, just enough that they become a little bit more liberal, that they become a little bit more progressive. And that's progress. An analogy I'd like to draw with that is that look at the gay rights movement. You didn't need 50 percent of Americans to become gay. (laughs) The bottom line was they they needed to come out, they needed to talk about their issues, and they needed to be humanized so that people stopped persecuting them and saw them as their neighbor, their best friend, their co-worker. As soon as that starts happening, it'll be hard to advocate for their murder. Right now you have 80-90% of Egypt and Pakistan that are A-OK with murdering us. Mohammed Syed and Sarah Hader of Ex-Muslims of North America. The website is exmna.org. I will include that link in the description box of this broadcast. Any final thoughts on the problem of Islam as we wrap up our conversation? I think ex-Muslims have a key role to play in that. And I think the human rights of ex-Muslims will determine the course of this entire issue over this next century. Sarah Hader? I would encourage, you know, people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure that there's a lot of people from non-Muslim backgrounds who are listening to it and they're thinking of ways that maybe they can help or they can be part of this conversation. And I know a lot of people are shamed when they talk about this issue, but I think that if everyone can just be a little bit more open with, at the very least, their hesitations, uh, they don't have to come down as a hammer on Islam and start posting every day about how this is the worst human rights abuse that ever existed. But if at the very least they can share their questions that they may be having or things that maybe they may be struggling with when it comes to accepting this faith. I mean, that's enough to just get the conversation going. And that allows us a little bit more room, uh, ex-Muslims, a little bit more room to speak out on our own. And circling back, sorry, to, to the beginning of the conversation about Raza Aslan, don't accept what people say at face value. There are a lot of people that have agendas and are lying about what the actual issues are. There are Muslims that are saying that Islam is a religion of peace. Muhammad was the first feminist. Ridiculous statements like that, that slavery never existed within Islam. All of those are lies. There was an article recently about how blasphemy laws didn't exist in the, uh, on the independent, that blasphemy laws were imported from uh, British colonialism. They didn't exist, which is a blatant lie. So you can look up, all of this is on Wikipedia, all of this is in the history books, all of this is in Islamic scripture. You can look it up yourself. Don't accept the apologetics from anybody. Even don't accept it from us. Look it up yourself. Muhammad Sayed, Sarah Hader, for your time and perspective, you are greatly appreciated. Thanks for all your great work. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. 
After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about this news that has just broken out of Turkey about how they're approaching evolution in their secondary schools. Just makes the head spin when we think about it. We'll talk about it in just a second. Also, later on in the broadcast, I'll be speaking with Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar. He was born in Iraq. He is an atheist today. He founded the Global Secular Humanist Movement, among other things. And he certainly has some opinions about all of this. Also on the show, Yasmin Mohammed, who was once married to a member of Al-Qaeda. And Armin Navabi, the founder of AtheistRepublic.com. Lots to do on the other side of this. Hang on. Thanks again to my patrons for supporting the broadcast. Patrons get a commercial-free version of the show every week and a bonus broadcast just for them. And if you would like to become a patron, just log on to patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. Well, there were face palms aplenty last week as the news broke. I'm reading this article out of The Independent. The headline says, Turkey to stop teaching evolution in secondary schools as part of a new national curriculum. I'll just read the first few paragraphs. Evolution will no longer be taught in Turkish secondary schools after being described as a controversial subject by the government, the theocratic government. The president has personally approved the change, which will be part of a new national curriculum published later this month. We have excluded controversial subjects for students at an age unable yet to understand the issue's scientific background. Secondary schools can't understand the issue's scientific background? Quote, as the students at ninth grade are not endowed with the antecedents to discuss the origin of life and evolution section in biology classes, this section will be delayed until undergraduate study. Oh, my God. Oh, it just hurts the heart, you know, and who pays the price? These poor children pay the price for the superstitions of their fathers and forefathers. I mean, it just makes you grieve for these poor children, and it makes you want to liberate them from these chains to be able to give them opportunities. I talked with Armin Navabi recently. I'm releasing a two-part video interview where he really goes in depth about his own fears about hell as he was indoctrinated into Islam in Iran and his drastic solutions as to how to get out. And I'll wait till I release the video. I'm not going to tell his story in advance, but that's coming up. It will be posted on the YouTube channel. But we were talking about the teaching of critical thinking skills. We were talking about how to combat the bad ideas of Islam. First of all, I asked him about the dangers and the damage that this particular flavor of religious thinking does. Here's what he said. People in the non-Islamic world, they usually are looking at it in a very selfish way. They're They're talking about danger to them. Islam was dangerous way before any terrorist attack happened here in the West. The the cost of Islam and religion in general, it's not a suicide bomb here and a terrorist attack over there. When you say dangerous, 
you have to add up all the costs that religions cause that are much more subtle, much less newsworthy, much less interesting, that a lot of people suffer every day in the Islamic world without us noticing. Let's say a Muslim that is dedicating his entire life to Islam or her entire life to Islam, that doesn't hurt a single other human being, that doesn't preach or influence anybody else's life. We think of that person as somebody that is not causing any harm, but he is causing harm to himself. He has wasted his life to a, to a lie. So what about peace-loving Muslims? What about the nonviolent? What about people who just want to worship? And what about those who say we should cultivate those things inside Islam? And we should make it more moderate. We should push it away from its fundamentals. The Muslims that are peaceful are not, or moderate, they're not peaceful or moderate because they have a reformed version of Islam. They're ignoring Islam. They are abandoning Islam. They are Muslim by name. They're not practicing Islam. They're not practicing a reform. They are nice. These are people that are nicer than their own religion. The only way to reform Islam is to get rid of Islam. Because the, any other concept of reform other than the abandonment of Islam involves believing in things without evidence. Historical versions of reform in Islam never denied Islam, never denied the Quran as a direct word of God, never denied that Muhammad was an infallible role model. These new reform, Western reform versions of Islam is something that is never going to happen and it's actually dangerous because it's suggesting to the West that there is a version of Islam that is not going to harm you. So it's just a politically correct solution that is never going to fly and is taking our attention away from the actual movement that is growing, that does have a chance, that is the ex-Muslim movement. The reform movement is very condescending because it's suggesting that people living in the Islamic world are too dumb and too stupid to understand that there is no God. So let's just, these dumb people, let's just hope that they believe in a version of Islam that is not going to harm us because it's too soon for us to even introduce secularism and atheism. But guess what? Secularism and atheism existed in these countries way before United States was even a country. The first two people that I talked about atheism in Iran in my university became skeptical about the religion within weeks. There's much higher chance of people abandoning their religion once you show them what their religion stands for. It's easier for me to make an argument that, hey, where's an evidence for God? Then to go make a gymnastic argument, hey, maybe this verse that tells you that you could beat your wife, maybe it doesn't mean you can beat your wife. Try making that argument because it plainly says in black and white that you could beat your wife, that you should beat your wife, and there's a lot of hadith that supports what it actually means. So you have to really think that these people are crazy for you to be able to sell that argument. The only reason why they might buy, buy your argument because they are nice people and they're desperate for this verse to mean something else. It's not because your argument for reform makes any sense. The reform movement is a sugarcoating for, for the poison pill of Islam. Armin Navabi, founder of Atheist Republic, 
Islamic-Republic.com, taking a pretty hard line on the idea of reforming Islam from within. Again, I'm going to release the entirety of these conversations with Armin Navabi here in the days ahead. Just look for them on YouTube. Gasmin Mohammed was once the wife of a member of Al-Qaeda. And to those who say there is no hope for the indoctrinated inside Islam, she is a living refutation of that. She escaped Islam. She is now an atheist and an activist, and she runs the website Confessions of an Ex-Muslim. And she shared with me part of her story. So I did write a book called From Al-Qaeda to Atheism. It's not yet published, uh, but I hope to get it published soon. It's just a memoir of my whole journey of leaving Islam, basically. Actually, it starts from when I was a kid and then the whole, all the sordid details are are in there. Now, hang on. Not just Islam. Al-Qaeda. Come on, you got to tell me more about that. What's the story? So that's jumping uh, about 20 years into my story, but um, okay, that's not well, actually me. You can take me, me back that's, to the beginning if you want. Oh, I mean, no, what serves the story best, you tell me. No, that that's fine. That's actually the part that people are most interested in, obviously. Um, when I was about 19 years old, I was forced into a marriage with a man who um, was sent here to help with the 9-11 effort. He was uh, working with bin Laden. Um, and actually, he entered Canada on a, with a fake Canadian, with a fake Saudi Arabian passport from Afghanistan. So this was pre-9-11 when we were very innocent. But of course, now if somebody, if an Egyptian man with a fake Saudi Arabian passport tries to enter from Afghanistan, that's a lot of red flags. Um, but he entered Canada and he claimed refugee status and, um, I had no idea that he was an Al Qaeda agent until I was approached by CSIS, who are the, the Canadian CIA. And, uh, and that's how I found out and, um, eventually got away from him and I had a daughter with him, took my daughter, escaped, um, and it, he, was uh, imprisoned in Egypt for 15 years, hard labor. Those 15 years are up. So I don't know where he is or what he's doing right now. Do you fear for your safety? I did for, for those 15 years, I did not. (laughs) Um, But now that I don't know where he is or what he's doing, and obviously now I'm very vocal, so it's, it's different, but I am using a pseudonym as well. My daughter is safe. Um, so I feel a bit more comfortable coming out and being vocal, although I try to be as, as careful as possible to not give away my my true identity and my true location. But, um, you know, I have to do the best I can. I have to speak out. I've spent my whole life biting my tongue. So, Yasmin, why do this? What drives it? Was it your background in the faith? <laughs> you know, interestingly, what drove it was the the catalyst for this whole thing was that famous episode with Ben Affleck and Sam Harris on the Bill Maher show. So after that episode... Now, f- flesh that out, though, for my listeners who d- didn't see the episode, what Affleck okay. did. Okay. Uh, so basically, Sam Harris and, and Ben... Or sorry, 
Sam Harris and Bill were trying to talk about Islam in the same way that we would talk about any other religion and they were dissecting it and Sam was talking about the concentric circles and you've got the moderate Muslims and conservatives, the jihadis, et cetera, et cetera. Everything he was saying was making total sense. I actually was impressed that he had such in-depth, like intimate knowledge of, of Muslims. Um, and then Ben Affleck just started to call Sam and, and Bill gross and racist. And he's like, Muslims just want to eat sandwiches. You're coming, you're coming up with all of these, you know, crazy slurs. And he just, he was shaking. He was flailing. He just really got very angry. Um, and I was watching that episode and I was thinking, gosh, Bill, you know, Ben needs to get on his meds like this is he needs to relax like these guys weren't saying anything offensive but then the next day my Facebook was covered in people who were praising Ben Affleck and they were like yay he stood up for the little for the minorities and oh he's such a great guy and oh now I'm gonna watch Batman and I'm like what is happening on this planet and so I felt like I needed to the the narrative that was out there that was so these are my friends these are people that they should know better but I had kept it a secret I'd never mentioned to a soul that I used to be Muslim partly because I was living in the Middle East for seven years and so I of course I don't want to mention that I was living in Qatar where it's uh punishable by death for leaving the religion so um a lot of people that had known me for 10 20 years had no idea that I used to be Muslim and so I decided that I had to speak up and I had to start to, to to counter this dominant narrative, which was totally and completely wrong. And I also felt that everything that Sam Harris was 100%, everything that Sam Harris said was 100% spot on, but people were unwilling to listen to him because of the color of his skin and his, you know, his, his sex. Well, and there's and a, so, a huge culture of people who are already screaming Islamophobe when it comes to Sam Harris and... And of That's course, right, Ben yeah. Affleck then playing right into the people's hands, you know, the, the Islamist hands who use Islamophobia as a term, as an insulator against criticism, right? If Correct. you criticize the religion of Islam, if you go after the Koran, if you go after radicalism, they just cry Islamophobia and supposedly they're off the hook, right? So he just plays right into their hands. Yes, it was it was terrible. It was and I think that that day was a catalyst for a lot of people to come forward. I know it was the case for um, Lalo Dagosh as well. And, and, and that's what happened with Dave Rubin. That's what caused him to, to leave um, the Young Turks. But anyway, um, I felt that as a, I was sort of had like this, this barrier around me, this uh, protection because I was a woman and because I had brown skin. And so I could say the exact same things and people wouldn't be able to shut me down with calling me gross and racist. They'd actually have to counter my words. So of course, quite often what they do is they'll first they'll accuse me of being some Western white woman that knows nothing. And then I'll say, well, no, actually I have, I'm from an Arab Egyptian background. And then they'll say, oh, well, you don't know anything about Muslims. I'll say, well, no, actually I was a Muslim for a good part of my life. And then then the third response is usually to block me. Is Islam a different animal? Like, is Islam the most dangerous religion on the planet today, in your opinion? Because quite often what I see happen is, is I'll post something from the Quran on the Thinking Atheist website or elsewhere. 
And there all of a sudden seems to be a reaction where they say, oh, yeah, but in the Bible, and they just reshift back to Christianity as if the two culturally in terms of influence, in terms of activity and action, in terms of the headlines and beyond are exactly the same here in the year 2017. And it's bizarre to see this sort of, uh, it's almost an, I don't know if it's a, an apology. Is it a fear of criticizing Islam? I don't know. What's your take on Islam in the 21st century? Well, I agree with you, and I think it's very obvious that it is the most dangerous religion right now. Uh, there are Islamic theocracies that are very powerful, politically powerful, very rich, <clears throat> and they're causing a lot of damage, and they're affecting millions of lives. So, I, and the fact that there are people being killed across the planet daily uh, because of of uh, Islam. I don't think that that's even a question. Like, I think I think it's just so obvious that, yes, of course, it's the most dangerous religion we have right now. Um, I don't I get very frustrated with people that do that to me, too. And I think that what they're trying to do is what they're trying to say is Islam isn't the only bad religion. Christianity is also bad. And it's like, uh huh. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> like, that's fine. However, right now, this is the problem we're dealing with. So, you know, I responded to one of these guys and I said, do you run through cancer wards and say people have AIDS too? Like we understand that there are different problems, but there are different like perspective, right? Like there are different degrees of different problems right now. This like, like a triage in the emergency room, Islam is the one with the gun, you know, with the, with the bullet wound in the head, <laughs> This is the religion we need to deal with right now. Christianity has like a little cut finger. Let's just leave it over there for a minute. It'll be okay. It's not going to bleed out. Well, what's but the, we wait, need to deal with Islam. What's the flavor of the Muslim faith that you practiced? I mean. I, I practiced the worst flavor, actually. It was, uh, it was Sunni Islam, but Salafi Sunni Islam. So I was... I went to Islamic schools that were funded by Saudi Arabia and my mom was a student at Al-Azhar University in Egypt. So um, about as literal literal uh, understanding of the Quran and the Hadith as possible. Our aim was to live as closely as possible to the way the Prophet lived. Do you find it ironic that Saudi Arabia continues to head the United Nations Human Rights Council? Do you find that ironic, like many of the rest of us do? Yes, I do. I find that very ironic. How does ironic. this happen? It's Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're they're slicing people's heads off in the streets. <laughs> How does this happen? Money. I mean, every the answer is money. There was a there was a Saudi Arabian guy in the UK who raped a young girl. And then his defense, Seth, his defense was, I slipped and fell in, which we use as a joke. Yeah. And you know what? It, he was acquitted. Yasmin, have you watched The Handmaid's Tale? Yes. Yes. And I've read it as well. Okay. Well, I haven't read the book, but I got hooked on the Hulu series and binge watched everything and now I'm in mourning because the series is over till 2018. Did you find it as compelling as many of the rest of us did? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So I'm watching it and we're talking about it with some friends and they're like, wow, I wonder if that could ever happen. And I, I stopped and I said, it is happening. It is happening. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is happening, but it's just not happening here. So people aren't aware of it, but a lot of us are millions of us are millions of us do live that life. 
I mean, I don't live it anymore, thankfully, but I, I, I recognize it very clearly. In fact, I was watching with my husband and I kept on commenting on how Islam was worse. I'm like, oh, look at these women walking along by the river. I was never allowed to walk along by the river. <laughs> like, to, you can't just walk out without a mahram, like without a guardian. There has to be a man with you, right? Um, and there was that, that one scene, especially, that got me the most when I was watching this series was when they asked, um, when they asked of Alfred, are you happy? Are you okay? And she said, yes, I love it. This is fantastic. You know, and that reminds me of all the women that are saying hijab is my choice. That was exactly it. I was that girl too. I would also say that hijab was my choice and I was not being forced into this and, um, now, did you really believe it at the time or you, were you part of kind of a marketing campaign? I mean, when I see the posters of the women out there who are holding the placards that say Islam is pro-woman, uh, part of me wonders how much of this is, you know, they're just sort of towing the line to keep them to keep their lives from becoming more complex or to prevent violent reprisal. I mean, I don't really know. Or maybe they really believe it. Well, I think it's a combination of what you described as well as just cognitive dissonance in general. Like somehow they can, like, I don't know if you saw Majid Nawaz speaking with uh, one woman who he was trying to get her to say that it's wrong for Allah to instruct men to beat their wives if they are, if they disobey. And she wouldn't say it. She's a woman herself. She's going to be okay with God instructing men to beat their wives just because she doesn't want to speak out against what this book says. So even if what they are supporting is against themselves, they'll still support it. it, it uh, it's an unfortunate cognitive dissonance going on there. Were it's brainwashing. As a practicing Muslim, were you happy in your heart? No, I was, I was very scared in my heart. I was petrified. I was terrified. Ex-Muslims talk about this all the time. All of us are on different kinds of anxiety meds, if not like potheads. Because, <laughs> Medicine you know, comes in many forms, I guess. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like like Richard Dawkins said, it, it's child abuse, right? We were, as children, we were told in such detail uh, the kinds of punishments that would happen to us in the grave on the day of judgment, in the afterlife, if we did not listen. And so it, it was it was so ingrained in me that even though I cognitively understood that none of this was real anymore, and I didn't actually believe in it, I was still scared for years, that whenever I would do anything, like if I'm about to drink, I'm like, Oh, my God, I hope I'm doing the right. Like, I, I, you know, you still kind of get worried. Um, because it's it just, it's so deep. The the fear is so deep. But I'm free of it all now, thankfully. Yasmin, what do we do here in a nation that promotes and celebrates the freedom of religion? You know, they're putting up the mosque, they're celebrating and practicing their faith, a peaceful version of Islam, right? They pray five times a day. They're like cultural Christians, right? We know those people exist. What do we do with the problem of Islam in that context? I think that's the I think that's the problem here is when it was because there's religion attached to it and there are good Muslims and there are not so good Muslims and it's not an easy 
it's hard to tell the Germans from the Nazis, right? You can't just tell by looking at them. And so I think that's what's causing us the biggest problems right now, where people get too worried about Islamophobia and uh, offending Muslims that they're, that they're not looking at the other side of the coin, which are the, the, the Muslims that we should be afraid of and that we should be concerned about. Um, I think that what we have to do is we have to be unapologetic about our laws and our, uh, our way of life, our values here. So if we say, for example, that we want secular public schools, then they will remain secular public schools. And when a Muslim comes along and says, but I want to have Friday prayers with all of my friends, the response should be no, I'm sorry, in the same way that the response would be no, I'm sorry, if somebody came and said, I want to have a Bible study. Um, but what happens, especially specifically here in Canada, is that they'll say they'll push Christianity out of the schools but then they'll invite Islam in because they're afraid that people will say that they're Islamophobic or they're racist or whatever. Uh, so that's that's the problem. If we just treat Islam the same way we treat all other religions, I mean, Americans are scared to death that Christians are going to take over and turn America into a theocracy. They're so worried about that. But yeah. then they, but when it comes to Islam, they're like, oh no, like they have no fears whatsoever. And I don't know if it's because they don't think that Muslims are capable, like they don't understand how dangerous Islam really is. But I try to express to them that their fear is, I mean, they're fear, they're, they're afraid of American Christians, but Islam is way more right wing than Christianity is. So it's kind of like they're, they're afraid of the smaller threat, they should be afraid of the bigger threat. You know, what keeps me up at night is, I mean, it doesn't really keep me up, but I, I pause and consider it. It's, you know, what's happened in the UK with these sort of subcultures where you see these Muslim groups sort of operating independently or attempting to operate independently of the rest of the, the culture, the rest of society. We have our own way. We have our own prayer. We have our own churches. We have our own rule of law. And that's what I wonder about in the United States and elsewhere. Look, if they're not going to change the existing laws Will they come in and attempt to create little pods that then become larger pods that exist as autonomous entities? And exactly that is happening in Australia right now. They're building a little community where they've got a school, a hospital, and a, you know, an apartment building, everything all in one area. And the streets are all named after, uh, you know, different, uh, basically murderers and, um, Imam Tawhidi, who is an imam in, in Australia, is speaking out against that right now. But yeah, that's a, that's a real possibility because if we don't, we have to we have to treat Islam with the same fear and the same uh, veracity that we treat other religions. So if 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 a Christian fundamentalist organization decided that they were going to build a little compound and they were going to have, uh, you know, their church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all happening there like a little Gilead, then people would be concerned. But when they say when Muslims are going to do it, it, they're not concerned because of the color of Muslim skin and they don't want to be racist. Do you and that to me is racism right there. There is an inflammatory accusation. I don't know if it's true. That when a radical does something, you know, they set off a suicide bomb, they take a machine gun to a nightclub, whatever, 
that the moderate Islamist or the moderate Muslim is suspiciously silent. Like, mm-hmm. why aren't the Muslims crying foul? Why aren't they rallying and, and protesting in the streets against this thing that they say they supposedly abhor? If they're peace-loving Muslims, why aren't they shouting about the mm-hmm. radicals? And, of course, I have seen some peace-loving Muslims who have protested against it. But what's your take on the moderate or peaceful Muslim in the context of the radical? Well, the moderate peaceful Muslim, first of all, is scared to speak up because then the radical is going to get them. And the radical might even get them first because they're betraying their own kind, right? Um, So they'll be like, they'll have to deal with stuff like Majid Nawaz has to deal with, right? Being called an Uncle Tom or Porch Monkey or whatever. So there's that. Uh, And then there's also, they know that that is the religion. They know that that's what their religion calls for. And so if they speak out against it, not only are they speaking out against the individuals, but they're speaking out against their own religion. And so they won't do it because they also are worried about their own afterlife. And if they criticize Islam, Allah is going to be mad at them and throw them in hell, right? So they're going to have to be quiet about that. I think for many of these people, there's a part of them that's like, go Islam, you know, yay us kind of thing. I mean, that's the charge I hear, especially from the more conservative party types. You know, they're like, uh, they they like to lumber, they like binary thinking, right? There's the us and then there's them. That was definitely the experience of the community that I grew up in. I mean, when 9-11 happened, everybody was rejoicing. And you'll hear the same if you ask anybody that was in a Muslim-majority country, you know, in, in Pakistan or in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia. There's rejoicing going on all over the world. So um, Why rejoice? Because the, we have been sort of propagandized as the evil Westerner that wants to put them under boot? Or is it a desire to take over the world? Is it the victory of Allah? Educate. It's, a, it's the victory of Allah. They get to kill the infidels. Um and that's what Islam's, as Zion Hirsi Ali has said, it's it's more than just a religion. It's a political, uh, it has political goals, right? It's, it, it's politics mixed in with religion, um, you know, with a little bit of smatterings of religion, but really it's, it's, a, it's a political ideology. Um, and so Islam's goal is to make the whole planet slaves of Allah. That's the purpose of it. That's what jihad is all about. So but when that goal is being reached, it's it makes Muslims happy. But certainly, Yasmin, there are people who just want to get up and pray and raise their kids and they love this country and they love freedom or whatever country they happen to be in that's a free nation. And yes. they're good people and, you know, they don't want to hurt anybody and they're not interested in world conquest. Certainly, those people this, exist. This is yes, of course, those people exist. And those people are not good Muslims, but they're good people. So I'm talking about the doctrine of Islam itself. That's what it prescribes. That's what it is calling for Muslims to do. So whether they do it or not is is up to the individual. And it reminds me of a, of a quote that um, Alishba Zarmin, I should I should really memorize this quote properly because I cite it all the time and every time I do it's incorrect. But she said something about how humans are more moral than the scriptures that they follow. Yasmin Muhammad, founder of the website Confessions of an Ex-Muslim.com. 
One more short break. When I come back, I'm going to talk to Faisal Saeed Al-Muttar. He's a friend. He is an Iraqi native. He is an atheist. He is a harsh critic of Islam. And he's got lots to say on the subject. We'll do that next. Faisal Saeed Al-Muttar is a friend and an activist and a guy who's hard to introduce because, first of all, he is legend, and second, because he's involved in so many things. Faisal, how should I introduce you for the broadcast today? You can introduce me as the president of the new organization, Ideas Beyond Borders, and uh, the founder of Global Secular Humanist Movement. We're talking about Islam. You know, I try to jump into the issue of Islam because it so often dominates our headlines. I am guilty of leaning toward Christianity, which is the dominant religion now in the United States. And it's my background, my area of forte and focus. But, you know, Islam is a problem. Do you think Islam is the most dangerous religion on the planet today? Well, I mean, I mean it depends which Islam are we talking about. Based upon the data of terrorist acts committed in the name of an ideology, Terrorist acts are committed in the name of Islam make up the majority of the attacks today compared to other religions. So I went on Facebook and I just posted a quick question just to see what the responses would be. It was more a social experiment than anything. I said, how would you solve the problem of Islam? And I capitalized problem and Islam. And I was amazed because person after person responded, well, Islam is not the problem. Or why aren't you talking about Christianity? Its holy book is just as bad as the Koran. Or something else. It's almost an apologetic, sort of a backlash against the very question. Or the idea of saying that Islam itself is a problem. And I just think that's weird. I mean, if it's a debunked mythology with some immoral and unsustainable verses, how can it not be a problem? Do you see this a lot, Faisal? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the whataboutery, I call it this term, I call it Bat-Pakistan. So whenever there is like a terrorist attack committed in the name of Islam through ISIS or Al-Qaeda and stuff, there are always people who say, but the Crusades, but Donald Trump, but etc., etc. And they try to ignore the issue. I mean, as well as it comes to naming the problem, I mean, that's one of the most, in my opinion, very sophisticated subject, because on one hand, I would like that many Muslims will join us in the war against extremists within Islamic world. The main terminology now being used, which I kind of support more than calling the problem Islam, is what's sometimes called Islamism, which is the politicization of Islam that leads its way to create violence and theocracy in the world. As for whether Islam itself is a problem, I mean, that is a problem with all religions, I would say. But what I, I think what we need to focus right now is how can we stop this cancer of extremism that spread it around the Muslim world for quite a while? And to name it Islamist, which stands for the politicization of Islam, I think is a better terminology to use to create alliances with people who are liberal Muslims or progressive Muslims who might share many of our values and other subjects, but at the same time committed on the same battle. I've seen some of the hardliners. They're saying you have to go after Islam as a whole. And other people are saying, no, go and empower the peace-loving and the moderate. 
is your take to go after the more moderate aspects, the cultural Muslim, and sort of empower them and cultivate the lack of fundamentalism in them? Yes, I mean, I personally, George, like to use the term moderate because especially when in the context of the Islamic world, now, like even within many media companies, anybody who's not a member of ISIS is considered a moderate. But that is not my definition of a moderate. I mean, I, I try to avoid that term because it's all relative. I mean, moderate compared to who? So, I mean, I, I prefer the term those who are liberal and secular Muslims and progressive Muslims. Those who actually really believe in the values of human rights and, and, and values of separation of mosque and state. This is to me are those who are really moderate, not those. So, for example, just to give you an example that really hurt me quite a lot is when the Women's March happened and they invited this woman whose her name is Linda Sarsour. And Linda has, through many former tweets of her, she, she was talking that the Sharia law, which is theocracy, literally, is okay. She also, one of her tweets, that she wanted to take the vagina of Ayan Hirsi because Ayan Hirsi is a bad person, according to her. I mean, this is not... But but if you go to mainstream liberal left-wing circles, and that would include the Women's March, she is considered a moderate Muslim. But in my opinion, she's not a moderate. I mean, she's not ISIS, that's for sure, but she's not a moderate. And there are so many organizations that claim to be Muslim organizations here in America. CARE is one of them, which is the Center for American Islamic Relations and ISNAN and other organizations. These organizations, in my opinion, are not moderates. So, yes, we have to empower, in my opinion, the, the real liberal and secular people within the Muslim world who might found that values of secularism and liberalism are compatible with their religion. And that's wonderful. I kind of believe that this is, in my opinion, the most important thing versus just atheism, because in some cases people can be atheists, but at the same time they can be Marxists and communists and and some believe in Ayn Rand philosophy of complete laissez-faire capitalism. These people can be atheists, but at the same time, they don't share my values either, or they don't probably support universal human rights either. So I would rather just focus on liberalism and secularism as the sign of moderation and find if there are people who are religious or identify with a certain religion adhere to these values. I've seen the warnings. Do we have to worry about one day having to fight against the establishment of Sharia law here in the United States? Sharia law is coming. They're going to find a way to establish these small pods with their own governments, and it's going to grow and expand. Should we fear it? Should we worry about it? Not at the moment. I mean, I think that there is lots of paranoia happening, especially within theocrats from the other side. I mean, if people... So, I mean, there has been, like, within the South, they have passed, for example, anti-Sharia bills. The thing is, like, if these Republicans who are pushing for these anti-Sharia bills, if they stood for secularism, then that is by default anti-Sharia bills. But because they are Christian theocrats who want Christian law, and they see they're anti-secularism by default, they are fearing that there might be another religion who might take over. I mean, I think that based upon the United States, it is not much of a fear. But I, in some places, for example, in Europe and UK and, and Canada is probably one of them, they are probably susceptible to might have some version of theocracy based upon their weird interpretation of multiculturalism. So, I mean, within the United Kingdom, there can be different laws based upon different religions and 
while in the United States there is kind of a standard in the Constitution that everyone should follow. So I'm more supportive of the U.S. style of imposing laws than the British one. When I ask a question about our current president, Donald Trump, it always pisses off the few Trump supporters in the audience. I mean, you can probably put them all in a Volkswagen, but I mean, they exist and they always send me a message and ask me why I'm anti-Trump. And it's not that I'm just anti-Trump. I just think he's a dangerous man. And in this culture of the travel ban, how much damage is being done under the Trump administration? And do you think there's a backfire effect where he's sort of reinforcing and causing the uh, the extremist and the fundamentalist to double down right now? They have a an enemy that they can fight against. What's your perspective? Unfortunately, we have I mean, at least we have reached a very polarized views about the discussion about Islam. And to some extent, these polarized views feed into each other. So on one hand, you have many people on the left. And, and I was at the Senate hearing with Ayan, and the denial within the Democrats that there is actually a problem of Islamic extremism was really disheartening. And that at the same time empowers those who are on the other end of the spectrum of far rights who have lots of xenophobia and racism in their ideas and pushing against Islamic extremism. So the travel ban, for example, I mean, it's, it's an, in my opinion, absolute xenophobic because, first of all, it is based mostly on nationality, banning entire nations. I mean, as I said, like, it's, it's very important not to make this a war between the West and the East, America versus the Muslim world, et cetera, et cetera. But rather find what all of us can have in common in terms of values. And I personally consider, for example, people like Raif Badawi, who, I, who is one of the jailed Saudi liberal bloggers, to also be an ally. And many people from Pakistan and, and Iraq and other countries who adhere to liberal values and secular values all to be allies. And this kind of travel bans and, and this kind of rhetoric that's coming from the Trump administration and many of his allies will definitely alienate many of these people and try to make it into a holy war between the Christian world and the Muslim world. And that is not what we need at the moment. You mentioned Ayan Hirsi Ali. I read her book, Infidel, and thought it was quite compelling, and I've appreciated the work she's done on behalf of women's rights all around the world. Ayanne, though, takes a lot of heat, especially from those, I don't even know how to label them, you know, everybody says regressive left, or, or they want to call them something, but there's a group of people who think that she is sort of a whitewashed version of the apostate, she's an opportunist, her voice doesn't really count. Uh, I don't know, do you have a perspective on Ayanne Hirsi Ali, her story, and the work she does? The way I see Ayan, she's been kind of like the founding father of this movement, uh, a founding mother in that regard, of this movement of apostates speaking against Islam. And considering that she's one of the first people who's done it, so she has been doing kind of trial and error. But overall, I think that her work has been quite helpful because she normalized criticism of Islam, especially coming from those who are ex-Muslims or even liberal Muslims who didn't feel motivated or didn't have the guts to speak out against the religion or speak out against the politicized version of the religion. So overall, I think positively of Ayan, there are some things obviously she said that I disagree with. She said that uh, the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, that's something I disagree with. But the thing is, like, people forget that I mean, when she was escaping the Netherlands after Dio Van Gogh was killed, so she made a video 
on a film called Submission with a filmmaker in the Netherlands, and that filmmaker was killed on the streets of Amsterdam. And then she got a death threat and she had to leave the country and come to the United States. And the liberals, I would argue, have betrayed Ayan. And then in a way that she had to side with conservatives and work with the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank. But that mostly happens because when she was critical of Islam, telling them that there is a problem of extremism, I just came from Western Europe, that we have many issues. Many people within the Democratic Party didn't take her seriously. And to the way that the people who are only helpful to her were the Republicans. And that is an issue that many of us actually face. I mean, not just Ayan. I mean, until, until today, every time I, I give a speech or, or, or write an article, critical of Islam, I seem to get more coverage from right-wing sources than left-wing sources. Even though, I mean, me personally, I mean, I'm a liberal. I'm not a right-wing bigot or, or right-wing in the first place. But it's just that on this issue, that denial has forced Ayan to take a side or at least be closer to one side. But I think overall, she created a positive impact. And actually, I'm starting, so within Ideas Beyond Borders, I'm starting, a, I, we already signed a contract with Ayan Hersali Foundation in which we bring liberal secular voices from the Muslim world to U.S. campuses. There's a press release on the Ayan Hersali website that talks about our partnership. You can go to the AHAfoundation.org. I'm a fan. I mean, she's out there opposing honor violence and the marriage of children to adults and female genital mutilation and, you know, the, all the, these horrors are often targeted to women. And I just think it's an amazing thing that she's done. And I think it's impractical to think that all free thinkers are going to line up on every issue. Many people seem to want that. You know, if we disagree, we don't just simply disagree. Now we must be enemies. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's rather tragic. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's the thing with being a free thinker is that you can agree with some other people and not follow them dogmatically. You mentioned, you know, there's, a, you know, when I say progressive, I, I've said this before, I consider myself a progressive on many issues. You probably do the same. I'd like to take it case by case, instance by instance. But when many people are talking about the progressives, they're talking about a group of people who, when you criticize Islam, they immediately say, we are to blame. We need to stop bombing their countries and killing their children and starting the wars and creating the monster. We are responsible for what radical Islam is today. I've heard you in the past use the term white guilt, <laughs> among others. But let's talk about this. Are we culpable? Are we responsible for the insanity that uh, radical Islam is capable of? The subject of radical Islam is quite complicated. I mean, it is for example, can someone make the claim that the United States support for some militant forces in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union help the rise of extremism? Yes, they can. But it's unreasonable to say that America created that cancer. Radical Islam, whatever you want to call it, has existed for hundreds of years. And the way it is right now, the more organized militias and everything, it is mostly a modern phenomena that, that existed for, I mean, since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But it's really interesting when these people make these claims, one about like we created, like we helped create radical Islam, but they don't think that, for example, the far right, when it's like the events that happened in London in which there was this guy hitting Muslims coming out of a mosque, they don't say, well, this is a reaction to Islamic terrorism. So the blame is only being put on the West in that regard. But I think the 
the power of ideology in terms of, of radical Islam, it is the first to be blamed for what's happening. I mean, I, I mean, I was giving a panel about this, and I said that, I mean, ideology not only decides our action, but our reaction to things. So let's say a hypothetical example, let's say the United States bombed an apartment in Syria or Iraq. And if the first reaction of this person is to start raping Yazidi women, start throwing gays out of rooftops, start beheading people from different sects, well, the fault is on this guy, right? So like when people say, I mean, ISIS is a reaction to U.S. foreign policy, for example, or the mistakes of your foreign policy or Israel, what they are doing is actually denying all the agency of these individuals who are members of terrorist groups. And that is what is mostly terrorists are thank for. So terrorists are actually, I mean, at least from the people who we're talking about, the progressives, they deny them any form of agency. They can actually do whatever they want. And then what the progressives are going to say, oh, well, it's like they start sl- like um, flagging themselves. Oh, it's my fault. I'm really sorry. In one way, the progressives actually fulfill all the dreams of terrorists in a way that nobody's going to hold them accountable. The ideology, in my opinion, of radical Islam is the first to blame for all of this. And yes, there are, yes, Western foreign policy played a role. I mean, the Western foreign policy have been far from great. I'm from a country that the United States have invaded. And yes, the United States did lots of mistakes in Iraq. But does that justify someone going and raping Yazidis and beheading gays? No. So the ideology that this person follows is first to blame. I'm interested in the history of repressed people throughout human history and how many people who were under someone's boot and who were starved and bombed and had gone through atrocity. And their response was not to kidnap someone and dress them in an orange jumpsuit and take a knife and saw their heads off. I just think to myself, how do people not see the distinction? Yeah, I totally agree. This ideology within the progressives is that they look at the world through a pyramid in which, and that pyramid decides the agency. So if a uh, if a white male commits the atrocity, he has full agency. If it's a white woman, she has less agency. If it's a black person or black transgender person, he has much less agency. If it's a brown Muslim, much less agency. So this is, so in one way, it's, I mean, that is what Ayan kind of coined of the racism of lower expectations, is that when a white person or let's say a white Christian it reminds me of a debate that I had in, in, in Northern California. And I said, what do you call a Christian Republican who is against gay marriage? And the guy said, I call him a bigot. Then I told him, thank you for calling 90% of Muslims bigots. Then he said, I never said that. Then I told him, if you apply different standards, different people based upon their race and their religion and what their oppression Olympics are, then you are the one who is a racist. Because if you are against homophobia as a principle, or you are against rape as a principle, then you should oppose it regardless of the race or the cultural context, socioeconomics of this person, because it's wrong, morally, objectively wrong. I mean, if someone is poor or if someone is making a million dollar a month, both of these people should not rape. Both of these people should not take Yazidis as sex slaves. People should not apply their morality based upon the oppression Olympics or the whatever level that these the people that they claim to be oppressed are. And people at the same time can be both oppressed and oppressors at the same time. Someone can be, let's say, American Muslim, who, let's say, lives in a place that are surrounded by racists. This person can be a victim of racism, but he can also be sexist and misogynistic who puts his 
wife in a plastic bag and allow her not to go outside the house. So he can be oppressed and oppressed at the same time. But because of this mentality that's happening is that the white people are evil, the brown people are good, oppressor is always oppressor, oppressor is always... But the world is much more complicated than that, in my opinion. Let's profile some of the stuff that you're doing as part of the solution. Since we've been talking about the problem for a while here, uh, tell me about the work that you are doing on your end. We acknowledge that the problem is ideological. So there is a war of ideas happening. And in order for us to defeat this idea, we have to create a counter-narrative to this idea. And we have to empower the voices that support universal human rights and secularism around the Muslim world. And these are the people that need the help the most in this battle. So we have multiple projects. We're actually working on our website soon. So it's going to be up about if God is willing, you know, but maybe uh, <laughs> maybe a month or so. Uh, but people, if they are interested, they can contact me and I will guide them. What will the website domain be? Do you know that already? Or? Ideasbeyondborders.org. Ideasbeyondborders.org. I'll make sure and direct everybody that uh, way. And hopefully by end of July, at least, we'll be able to see that come to fruition, my friend. Uh, I appreciate your perspective. I'm so glad for your bold voice out there in this conversation. You are right there on the front lines, and it matters, and it makes a difference. So, Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar, you are greatly appreciated, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I know after all this time, we've barely scratched the surface, but if I had to revisit the title of the broadcast, What is Radical Islam? I would probably have to rephrase the question, What is Literal Islam? What is fundamental Islam? What are the tenets of Islam according to its scriptures? Just as I won't separate Christianity from its foundational holy book, I mean, I can talk about cultural Christians and how they distance themselves from the verses they find inconvenient to the verses they're not even aware of. But it's still the Christian Bible. It's still the foundational document for the entire religion. It's still the core foundation for Christianity. The same holds true for Islam. What is radical Islam? I think it's literal Islam, according to its scriptures. And the fact that people are defending a brand of Islam that has less and less to do with the Koran, I find hugely revealing. Anyway, I know it's a discussion that is going to continue. Thank you so much to all of my guests and for listening today. You will again see over the course of the next several weeks a steady release of long-form video versions of many of these interviews. It's sort of an Islam-focused rollout here on The Thinking Atheist. But something I felt that, you know, here in the month of Ramadan would be important and relevant and something we should certainly be talking about. I'll be back next week. I've got a conversation with a woman named Sarah. Sarah has just recently, and I mean just recently, escaped fundamental Christianity and a pretty oppressive childhood. And she's going through some difficult times with her family. A conversation with Sarah pretty much constitutes the entire broadcast, and I think you're going to find it compelling and heartbreaking and wonderful and so many things. That's coming up next Tuesday. Take care of yourself. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you soon. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.